Welcome to the Thriving Artist Podcast, a feature of the Clark Hewlings Fund for Visual Artists. The Clark Hewlings Fund exists to provide training, introductions, and funding for working artists to turn working artists into thriving artists. I'm Daniel Degree, your host. Despite having 200% more education, less than one-third of working artists fully support themselves with their art. The difference is proper business training, which the Clark Hewlings Fund solves with educational fellowships, digital education, and in-person learning. You can have an exponential impact on working artists and our economy with a monthly donation that funds CHF's educational programming and this show. Your investment does not buy an artist a fish, it buys the fishing rod. So give small at clarkhealingsfund.org impact. That's clarkhealingsfund.org impact. Our guest today is Maria Brophy. Maria is an art business consultant and the author of Art, Money, and Success. She got her start managing her husband's surf art business, and she applies that experience to her work with other artists. Her areas of expertise include licensing, creating multiple streams of income, and putting deals together. Welcome to the show, Maria. What exactly, Maria, does an art business consultant do? Can you nail it down for me or give me the guidance counselor description if I wanted to be an ABC? Yeah. Thanks for having me, Daniel. Yeah, so as an art business consultant, basically I solve business problems for artists, and that's what I really enjoy doing. And some people ask me, what's the difference between a coach and a consultant? And a coach would be somebody who works with you ongoing, and they work with you on a lot of things other than your business, like the personal things that you're having issues with. For me, I like to solve real business problems, such as how much should I charge for this? Should I sign this contract? How do I negotiate a deal? How do I get this particular business deal that I've been wanting to do? How do I get out of a contract that I signed two years ago? And so on. Now, you work with individual artists, Maria. Do you think that most artists understand that they are, in fact, sole proprietors of their own business? I think a lot of artists do not see themselves as being in business. And that is a song that I find myself singing over and over and over again is if you want to have a successful art career, you have to view yourself as a business owner, which means that you have to make sure that you have the three most important components that a business owner must have for them to remain in business. And that is you've got to have cash flow, you've got to have profit, and you've got to have growth. And I think a lot of artists don't realize that because artists work from their heart and the side of the brain that doesn't think about business. They're doing what they do best and they forget about the business aspect of it. I like how you brought in uh, growth. You know, the old adage is if your business is not growing, it's dying. So um, that, of course, is near and dear to my heart uh, as a marketing consultant. I have a question. So you, you described what an art business consultant is uh, earlier, but I'm not clear on this. Does this mean that you manage the artist's career for them or do, in fact, they need somebody to do that? I'm glad you asked that question to clear that up. No, I do not manage artists' careers. I, I actually went through a brief three-year period years ago where I did represent other artists. Um, I decided to stop doing that. It wasn't good for me. It didn't work out for me. So I, I realized that the best way I could help artists is to teach them the tools that they need, the strategies to do a better job when it comes to business. And so the way I work with artists is they typically they'll set up a one-hour consultation with me. We'll focus on one to three problems that we are solving or looking for, looking for a solution or looking for 
a next step to get them moving in the direction and what they and to, to help them get to whatever result they're trying to get. Well, let me ask you this. So I think a lot of artists, you know, we hear this a lot. A lot of artists really just want somebody to do it all for them. And it sounds like you're sort of suggesting that even if you have somebody to do parts of running the business for you, you really can't escape getting to know how it's supposed to work, getting to know the ins and outs, because they're key decisions to make in the first place. Uh, and they're really important uh, decisions that have pretty big impacts. So let me frame it this way. Um, is it important that, are there, are there benefits uh, in artists managing their own careers versus just completely outsourcing the whole thing and spending all their time in the studio? Absolutely. Um, well, first of all, it's really, really difficult to find an agent that's going to do everything for you. The, it's difficult because it's a lot of work for that agent, and they're going to have to be paid for it. And so you're going to have to figure out how to pay them until the money starts rolling in, until they, uh, you know, it's a, it's a financial thing. The second thing is nobody's going to care about your future more than you do. And what I mean by that is, let's say you have an agent, and they're very aggressive with getting you the best deals, selling your art, and so forth. They're motivated by, the, by closing a deal and making the money. They're not motivated by the things that might be most important to you as an artist. And that might be, you might have certain values, certain, there, there are things that are going to be really important to you. You might not want your art represented in a certain way, and this agent may just make a deal on your behalf that puts your art in a position where you don't want it to be, where it could harm your reputation forever. And um, that's why you really have to have your hands in it, even if you've got an agent doing work for you. You have to know what's going on with your work. You, have, you, you can't let somebody make all the decisions for you. They may make the wrong decisions, and you are the one that pays the price for it. Let me pivot for a moment and ask you about artist education, because it seems like um, some of this would be covered in art school, right? So let me ask you, do you think art schools better prepare artists for the market than they used to? Are they doing a bang-up job of it already? Or is there room here for um, art schools to actually do something to allow artists to manage their own career? I think there's a few schools out there that are trying to work some of this uh, business and marketing into the curriculum. I think most of them do a poor job because I, I'm not sure why. I'm not sure why, but most of them do a poor job. And I see this because I work with so many artists and the majority of the artists I work with are highly educated and they went to art school, and they struggle with the business end of it. I think there's um, a ton of room for improvement. And really, artists, artists need to take classes. There are so many classes out there. There was uh, just last week in San Diego, they had the Plain Air Convention, and they have business classes there. And I think that's the main reason that artists go to that convention is to take those classes because they are hungry for this information. Every time I've taught a class here locally at the art supply store in my town in San Clemente, California, the room is packed. People are just, artists just eating this information up. They want to know how to sell their art, how to market their art, how to do it, all the details. Well, let's talk about 
what happens in that room when you say they're eating it up? What's the most common business advice that you're actually handing out these days? Or, or are there, there questions, if you will, that seem to be the big ones? Well, there's a, let's see, there's a couple of things and I, I get to pick, let me just pick one. Um, one thing is that artists get a lot of opportunities to do things. For example, if you're an artist in town and you're well known as being an artist, you're going to be asked to do a lot of things. Like, why don't you come do a live painting at our charity event? Or why don't you come and help the middle school kids paint a mural? And things like that. And, and they're great. But it's wonderful. Um, however, one thing that artists don't realize is that everything they do, if, this, if they're in this as a career, which means it's a business, then everything they do must generate a cash flow and a profit. And if it's not generating that, then until they have a surplus of money being generated, they need to say no to things or figure out how to turn the request into a paid gig. And people don't even know that they can do that. And that's one thing that I teach artists all the time is when a charity comes to you and says, hey, we've got this black tie event. We want your best piece represented. Now, a lot of artists will say, oh, wonderful. Here, take it. And, you know, it's a $3,000 painting and the artist is having trouble, you know, paying their rent that month, right? What they don't realize is they could say, I would love to donate to your charity. Here's what we can do. We can either I can either charge you a wholesale price, which is half, that would be 1500 or we could split the proceeds 50-50 if it's a live auction. And anything that you get over, you know, your 50% is my donation for a $3,000 piece, you get $1,500. That's a very generous donation. So now the artist isn't out $3,000. They're able to give their best piece, which represents them beautifully to the community and the buyer is getting the best piece of art where what I've seen is the opposite where an artist will say well gosh I don't want to give my best piece because I'm just giving this away so I'm going to get this dusty old piece from the back room and just give it so then everybody loses when you just give the dusty piece the artist doesn't get any you know they don't get their expenses covered the charity doesn't look good because they've got you know, this piece of art that's not that great, and the, the people there don't benefit either. So there there are ways to make everything you do profitable. You know, I like uh, a couple of the points you're underscoring. One is that, you know, if you create a situation where you're giving, but it's not sustainable, then you can't continue to give in the future. So it's bad for charities and bad for artists for um, artists to simply give their best work all the time with no pay. And so as a result of that, you're sort of underscoring the other point, which is that you know it's got to be reciprocal any just ethical and balanced relationship in the world uh, nobody starves so the other person can eat it's uh, a reciprocal relationship so you you know i love your example of uh you know all right so i'm not going to give it away but tell you what um if i do whatever i do at half of what it would be um, you're getting an incredible value there call that an in-kind donation and uh, the rest of it um, yeah, I need to. I need to have something there. I can't just, you know, not cover my costs or my basic needs and and so on. And even then, you can't work at um, half the rate. So this issue came up the other day, and a 
a colleague of mine who is a facilitator for the Clark Hewlings Fund, uh, Steve Pruneau, pointed out that you only give something away really and rightly and justly when you also, when it's worth it, when you get something equal to the value of what you're not getting. So it's okay to give up a little bit of money if you're going to get a lot of contacts or, you know, uh, it's okay to give up uh, a little bit of money if you're going to get an opportunity to really strengthen the relationship and have long-term future work that is paid or something like that. But if it's give just to give, it's probably uh, not good for either either party. It's not fair to even be asked that. So I, I love, I, I'm at the risk of summarizing what you've said. I, I love that. I'm not trying to mansplain it, but wow, you know, you're really kind of championing and champion, I can't even say it, championing our values. Uh, I want to ask you this, though. Your website mentions specifically the phrase establishing the right niche. Uh, So I'm curious, how can a working artist ensure that they're setting up the right niche? What does that mean? And simultaneously, do do a lot of artists float around kind of for the fear of choosing the, the wrong niche? They absolutely do. Well, it's like this. If you are painting any and every subject matter and using any and every kind of medium, and you're trying to sell to any and everyone, you're going to sell very little because you're not going to connect with anyone. When you try to be all things to all people, you are nothing to nobody. But if you can work within a niche, focus on a niche and market yourself in that niche, it's incredibly powerful. And I'll give you an example. So a niche would be like a mall industry or lifestyle, etc. So a great example would be my own husband, Drew. When I met him, he painted in the niche of the surf world, surfing. He was a surfer. And mostly at the time when I met him 21 years ago, he only painted surfboards at that particular time. And he became known, he became known and to this day, he is the best-known surfboard artist in the world. Now, surfing is a tiny world. It's a tiny industry. It's very small. There's a lot of value in being a big fish in a little pond because when you're a big fish in a little pond, somebody wants a painted surfboard and they've got money to spend. Let's say it's a, well, I'll tell you some of our clients have been Google, Western Digital, a lot of different tech companies, and and then Hard Rock Casino in Las Vegas, just to name a few. When they want the best and they want a surfboard that's painted, who do they go to? They go to the guy who has specialized in that area for years. So you could do that with anything. You can do that with lifestyle. Let's say you're into horses or you're into Harley motorcycles or you're into fishing, like Guy Harvey is into fishing. He's famous in Florida for painting fish. You become known for either lifestyle art or you can become known as the artist who paints flowers in Maui or, you know, you could be like a destination artist or you could be known as the photographer who spends time in Africa photographing species that are falling off the planet, you know, that are going extinct. So there's a lot of different ways to have a niche. Your your niche could be maybe a style that you paint, something different that you developed something unique that could even be your niche i like what you're talking about you know i think of two sort of 
ends of the spectrum. I mean, you you took niche in a different direction, a surprising direction. I was thinking you were you were going to talk about you know sort of a project, uh, a product niche, et cetera. But you're really talking about like on the one end you have Frederick Remington, who's bronze statues of Broncos and uh, bucking Broncos and cowboys and Indians along the trail and stuff like that. They're, you know, of course, they're iconic and everybody is aware of those. And at the other end, you have somebody like Clark Hewlings, who did work like uh, Parisian markets uh, and, uh, you know, people pulling carts up hills. Uh, and so he has uh, quite a diversity of his work. But if you see a painting of a burrow, there's, you know, flip a coin, there's a 50% chance it was done by Clark Hewlings. Uh, he's known for that. It's like the icon of his brand, if you will. He's the guy that paints those burrows. And they're not in every painting, but wow, they show up a lot. They kind of represent the everyman or the local worker and so on. Well, and here's the interesting thing is that when you see something that makes you think of, of Clark Hewlings, even if it's not his art, you think of him. That's the power of having a, uh, being so well known in a niche, is even if it's not yours, people will think of you and they'll say, oh, that looks like a Drew Brophy or a Clark Tuline or uh, an Ann Geddes. You know, if you remember who Ann Geddes is, the photographer who would take tiny, tiny babies and put them in flowers and photograph them in the most interesting way. Well, Anytime you, I see somebody do something creative with baby photographs like that, I think of her, even if it's not her work. That's the power of it. And, and that's why I say a big fish in a little pond, it's incredibly powerful. That's, that's important. Yeah, that's fascinating. It's sort of like when you see a film, you're like, I bet Tarantino made that. He didn't, but it made you think of Tarantino or George O'Keefe, and you see the erotic flower pictures, etc. That's a... A stellar point. I, I think a lot of people wonder how you you figure out what your niche is. You know, we, you talked, you said that people do float around a bit and they get they get sort of concerned they're not choosing the right thing. You know, we were talking yesterday uh, again. Steve Pernod, one of the facilitators, and I were talking about Brene Brown, who she sort of went on a TED talk and they told her, you know, you're you're really that kind of person, Brene. You get personal. You're vulnerable. We don't want that. Get up there and talk about what you're going to talk about. It'll talk about your personal life. And she got up there and she couldn't do it. She'd had like a car wreck and a breakup or something else. And she got up there and and uh, she had a talk about it. And she decided she was so frustrated about being told what not to talk about that she'd just talk about being vulnerable and about vulnerability. Next thing you know, she became the vulnerability lady. And she went on to do another TED talk about vulnerability in the previous talk and wrote a book about vulnerability. It has a website and runs a blog. And now she's, if you're going to have any kind of a conversation about vulnerability, you immediately think about, oh, well, you know what Brene Brown says. You know, let's get her here and she can talk about it. So you're kind of dealing with that. I wonder what are the clues, if we look at it that way, that it can kind of happen accidentally. Because you, you hear people... Maria say, you know, do this. You hear somebody like yourself say, you got it. You should choose a niche. But then if I just sit down and go, what's my niche? What's my niche? I know I have a niche. What niche should I choose? Uh, I don't know. I'll paint grapefruit. You know, uh, it's not quite that way. It happens organically, right? So how do they, how do people find the thing in themselves and their work that rises to the surface organically? That is both their niche and a thing they're not artificially committed to. Does that make sense, what I'm trying to ask? Yeah, it absolutely makes sense. And I think a lot of artists have a niche and they don't even know it. It's like right under their nose. 
because they don't realize that it's a niche. And it could either be connected with a lifestyle that they love. There's, there's 10 million lifestyles out there that people live, literally millions. And, and the lifestyle could either be your religion, the exercise you love to do, a sport, recreation, nature. You know, there's just so many things. And if you're not painting any of those things, it could be your medium or your technique. So an abstract artist, some abstract artists have have these very unique techniques that is all their own. And most pe- other people look and say, how are they doing it? They can't figure it out. Well, maybe that's kind of their niche. That can be the, their calling card, so to speak. If you love to paint landscapes, maybe you love to paint landscapes of the area in which you live. And that's your niche right there. So if you were lived in my town, San Clemente, and you painted landscape, you would be a landscape painter of San Clemente. That doesn't mean you can't paint other things. It doesn't mean that you can't paint landscapes of San Francisco. What it means is that that's what you focus on for your marketing. Because people who come to San Clemente on vacation and they fall in love with it, and then they see your work, and it reminds them of the great time they had, they're going to buy it. And then you find a way to connect with them. You find a way to reach those buyers that will connect with your work because they share a love for the thing that you're doing. So I want to ask you, we're kind of dancing around the edge of this concept of branding, which you know any marketing or salesperson is going to go, well, oh, it's very clear. Maria's talking about branding, except that what you actually said was it could be genre, it could be medium, it could be subject matter. You're not talking about branding in the product level sense. And, and so as preface to the next question I want to ask you, you know, a colleague and I were having, I keep referring to this, uh, it's not the same colleague, by the way, uh, a colleague and I were having a, a conversation about classical music and what happened in the early 20th century. You know, you had, you know, you had Haydn and Mozart and Beethoven and Chopin and Wagner, and then all of a sudden, Schoenberg, you know, and tiddlywink music and a, and a complete pivot where some people are doing industrial things and some people are just, it's random and there's cricket chirping noises and you're like, what, what's going on? What pivoted here? And uh, the interesting theory that I got was that the emphasis on branding meant that for a lot of people, they felt they had to do such a radical departure from the tradition that instead of letting their art develop organically, and we're using music now as a metaphor for, say, visual art, but instead of letting their art uh, develop organically, you know, the way that art evolves, they radically did anything that was a, a repudiation of everybody else around them so they could do, they could radically distinguish themselves. The pressure was, I have to be different. I have to be different in medium, in message, in subject matter, in format, in every way. And so we got this kind of now modernist random randomism uh, and what you got is the Beatles and, and popular music carried on the tradition so if you're listening to a rock band now you're hearing you know hints of melody and things that were established by Mozart right and if you look at the same thing in visual art uh, not to get on a soapbox but we talk about this a lot at the Clark Killings Fund that you have almost a backlash against realism and maybe our abstract impressionists in the audience don't feel this as much, but the, the realists and the, uh, the figurative artists very often are taking a lot of 
you know, flack. The, your stuff is passe. It's part of a tradition. It, it doesn't deviate enough. And so, and then that gets confused into a conversation of branding. You know, well, you're not any, your picture of a flower is just a picture of a flower. And so is Georgia O'Keeffe. So you're not sufficiently different from Georgia O'Keeffe. So we don't want any more flowers. We've already seen Georgia O'Keeffe, no flowers here. And that isn't what you're saying. I can tell that's not what you're saying because you're, you gave so many different criteria for possibilities for finding a niche that had nothing to do with this sort of hard and fast, you know, rigid enforced branding. So here's my question to you. What is your advice? What is the difference for you between branding in a, in an almost artificial way that requires you to reject everything and branding sufficiently uh, by finding a niche that you can be the person known for something, known for painting those trolls or whatever it is. Go with your heart and use your head along the way. I don't think that artists should do things just because they're supposed to do them. I, I listened to one of your interviews with Dean Mitchell. Great interview, by the way. And I love some of the things he said about how he paint it what he wanted to paint. I mean, I'm absolutely paraphrasing here, but, but I really could relate to that. I, I think that you should do what you want to do. Don't do things, don't create art just because a gallery says, well, greens aren't selling anymore. Now you need to do blues and oranges. I mean, I've heard galleries say things like this. And I really think if you're true to what you want to do, you can make a business around that. I mean, obviously, people have to love what you're doing. You, get, you have to have at least a, a, a certain number of people that love what you're doing for you to be able to do this for a living. But when you do what you believe in, when you create what you believe in, sometimes it takes other people a longer time to come around and see it, but eventually they will if you stay consistent. I know this doesn't exactly answer your question, but I think, you know, um, working within a niche and branding yourself, it is all, it does all kind of tie in together. The branding of yourself is like everybody, ha you have your own brand because you're a human being and every human has something interesting about them. Every single one of us has a story. It's, we have several stories, and whatever story we choose to tell about ourselves is the story that people pick up. And even if you were, uh, you had the most boring life in the middle of, I don't know, Kansas on a farm, you still have an interesting story about how you ended up being an artist. You might not think it's interesting, but other people will. And figuring out a way to tell that story. I know an artist here in San Clemente, his family, his father and mother had nine children. He was the youngest. And they decided to drop out of society. His father was a medical doctor, but said, the heck with society. We're getting an RV, and we're going to homeschool our kids and live on the beaches of Mexico. And they literally traveled for 20 years with these children, all crammed into a little RV. And that was his life. And they never went to school, these kids. And they're all grown up now. They're in their 40s and 50s. And the youngest one is a very good artist, and he lives right here in my town. That's probably the most interesting story I've ever heard, but that is his story. And people who buy his art buy into his story. They love his story. And his art isn't really telling the story, but it does show the pain. Um, because it was a painful way to grow up, believe it or not, um, in a lot of ways. And so 
That's his story, but we all have a story, and that's what branding is. And with businesses and companies, branding sounds so cold because most of the time it's made up. But with a human being, it's not made up. It's there organically. Well, I don't think you didn't answer the question. I think you, you did. That, uh, I think that's a pretty profound answer. So I, I know I'm getting a lot out of it. And it, it just it reminds me of, <laughs> embarrassed to say this on the air. Oh, my gosh, I'm going to get mailed for this. But I, I, fine, I watched the Rush documentary the other day about the evolution of the band Rush and how they came to, about. And yes, I am a Rush fan. I but, love uh, Rush. <laughs> I do. I grew up listening to Rush. I didn't know there was a documentary out. Now I'm going to have to watch it. Yeah, on Netflix. You're one of the 1%. You know, they show Rush, they show films of Rush concerts and they go, find a woman in this crowd. They're all men, you know. And it's true. You know, you're the 1% demographic and it's 99% male. But <laughs> I didn't even know that. No, I, I listen. Hey, I'm 52. I just turned 52 two days ago. Rush, I was out when I was a teenager, and I listened. I had all their albums. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, in in the Rush, yeah, it's always it's the only concert you go to where the the people on the front row are not women jumping up and down, but they're men shaking their fists. It's just it's amazing, but. The point in the Rush documentary they made was, you know, everybody told Rush, don't do what you're doing. You can't do what you're doing. It's, you know, you can't do these philosophical lyrics and you can't sing with that high voice and nobody wants the style that you're doing. You know, you've got to, you got to pivot. You're trying to be a three-piece band. I mean, get serious. And uh, I mean, this isn't the 50s. And they just decided that if it was going to come to that, they didn't want to do it. And so they're like, we're going to do it. We're going to do it anyway. And the fact that they did it is why it became a brand for them. And they became this three-piece powerhouse brand with a guy with a very high voice that sings very philosophical lyrics written by their drummer, Neil Purton. And uh, so by, by everybody telling them, no, we already have that, we don't want more of it, and them keeping all the elements that they were hearing that about, those that constellation of elements and doing it in their way became their brand. And I, I think what you're saying by follow your heart um, is what that documentary is saying, and I, I think it is the answer. So I, I find this valuable. And everybody's so afraid. They're afraid to do what they want to do. And I, I'm glad you shared that story with, about Rush because just keep doing what you want to do. The rest of the world will come around. I, I think that's poignant advice. Uh, so I want to ask you, that kind of uh, brings us to the second segment of our show. We, we have uh, four segments today, and this one is on licensing. So let me, this, this is a nice segue. Let me ask you, because once you start getting a brand or a niche or whatever you want to call it, a visually identifiable style, etc., you start potentially attracting interest in licensing your work. And I wonder if you could just answer a basic question so, so that people understand what this segment of the show is about. Can you explain licensing to me as a layman and as a visual artist would understand it or would need to think about it? So licensing is basically giving someone or a company temporary rights to use your artwork, your image or images for a product or campaign. So an example would be Absolute Vodka. If anyone's ever seen the Absolute Vodka ads, and I think every now and again Absolute Vodka does something really cool where they'll 
license the art from an artist. An artist gets to design a special edition of their vodka bottles, and then it's in their it's part of their advertising campaign for a period of time, and the artist's name is on everything. That is a good example of a licensing deal. Another example is you walk into a Target and you see coffee mugs and some of them may have Dilbert, you know, cartoon on them or some kind of artwork on them. There's a good chance that that artwork was licensed from an artist. So an artist is paid to allow a company to use their art on products. Let me ask you a a follow-up question. So I I can almost hear the, the gears turning in some of our listeners' minds. Uh, I am a, a bronze sculptor. I am a, uh, a painter of landscapes. Is this issue of licensing ever really going to apply to me? I don't see somebody slapping my landscape on a coffee mug or a t-shirt and making it uh, a continue, you know, a branding thing or a, a thing that's going to require a licensing agreement. Is that incorrect thinking? Are, are people passing up opportunities if they think that way? Possibly. Some art just doesn't translate to licensing. Your typical licensing deal is to put art on products that's going to sell in mass retail stores. For those kind of deals, the art has to have high mass appeal. And it typically fits in with the trends of the year or the season. You know, I don't know if you remember a couple years ago, you saw owls with big eyes on everything. Remember when, you know, you'd walk in a store and there'd be owls printed on everything and these owls with big eyes. I I just remember that there being an explosion of that for a few years. That was a trend. Abstract art is typically much more difficult to license. Sculpture may or may not be. It depends, you know, and on how well-known and iconic the work is. I do know of a sculpture artist who created a sculpture in Hawaii. She did this very, it's it's now very iconic. It's the signage, but it's a sculpture. It's the signage to a little town on the North Shore of the main island in Hawaii. And it's been there for, I don't know, 25, 30 years. And it's so iconic. It's printed on postcards. And now they're making like little statues of it. But she's been licensing that out because she owns it. And so in that case, um, yeah, sculpture was licensed because it's an iconic image. And, and then there's, there's a lot of artists out there that create artwork that is, it might be artwork, but it's also kind of illustrative. And those kinds of artists do get approached by a lot of companies to put their art on T-shirts, hats, things like that, because it'll look great on those items. And that would be a licensing deal. Or skateboards. Skateboards are a great example. Almost all skateboards have artwork on them. So I, I, I get what you're saying. It's, uh, it's broader than maybe we might think. So, you know, it could, we talked about trolls earlier. So if, if you're the person that paints all those trolls, somebody might use one of those trolls as uh, an image for, for selling something. Uh, but, you know, we can think about even, uh, I can't remember his name, the great American painter who did that post office scene that's been on a million Hallmark cards and calendars. You, you know who I'm talking about. Uh, but we won't think of it in this show because I just brought it up. <laughs> <Without> the, <laughs> but, uh, Norman Rockwell? Rockwell, yeah. Rockwell. Yeah. yeah so great example. Great example, great example of licensing. Uh, but you take somebody like uh, Ray Caesar who paints these sort of 
semi-surreal images that range from, you know, a little kid with kind of a, a you know, Flash Gordon red bandana tied over his his face with eye holes and smoking a pipe. Uh, you know, it's kind of a, a surreal image. Or he's got an alien dressed as a funeral home director, you know, holding a candle. And, you know, he does these interesting figurative works. Sooner or later, somebody is probably going to want to license one of those. And we're going to start seeing that guy and variations on that guy. Those aliens are going to start popping up everywhere. And somebody's going to sell a line of clocks with aliens on them. Uh, so I think uh, you're talking about there are a lot broader opportunities, regardless of the kind of work that we do. There can be. It can be a huge opportunity. And I can tell you, there's a lot of artists trying to get into that business model of licensing. It is a business model. There's, I don't know the percentage, but I think it's just kind of a small percentage of those that actually make six figures or more. There's a few artists in the country that make in the millions. And, you know, and, and their art is not spectacular at all. It, some, sometimes it's very surprising. The amount of the, the artists that make millions off their art are not the most talented. It's that they hit on something that mass amounts of people really enjoy. But to give an idea of, like, how you can make money off of licensing, my husband's art is very illustrative, and so it's perf- it works perfectly with so many kinds of products. And that's how we got into licensing back in like 2001, 2002. We started learning about it. And our first big license deal was with Whammo for boogie boards. And so my husband did an entire line of boogie boards with them. They ended up making like each year, like selling like a half a million boogie boards, mostly in the U.S., but also all over the world with his art on them. And it was such a successful thing and we did it with them for seven years and it was it was wonderful we so to to give an example of when it when it does work one of the beauties of licensing your art is you can do a painting once you sell the painting you keep the image and then you can license the image so you're making money off the same image again and again so my husband did a painting back in 1999 and i i remember this was Back when he painted in our backyard before we had a studio, and he was in the backyard painting, and we had an art show coming up, and he was painting this whole series, and this one painting, I looked at it, and I said, honey, I don't, I don't really know about that painting. I'm not really liking it. And he said, this is going to be one of my best paintings ever. And darned if he wasn't right. So that painting, it was a small painting. It was about, a, I think it was like an 18 by 24, maybe 16 by 20. It was called Pure Joy. It was a painting of a, a guy on a surfboard looking really happy. Bright colors, big sunshine in the back. It was the first one that sold at our art exhibit. We sold it for $450. But we licensed that image so many times between now and then, we've made over $250,000 off of that one image. Well, so the point I think that you are drawing out for us is that this is a, a legitimate business model and to keep an open mind about it and think about how we could leverage this model. So I have a couple of questions about that. So one is at what career stage should artists start thinking about it and how do you break into it? Is there, a, uh, I realize it's different for everybody, but is, are there a few commonalities to, you know, if, if we just envision that there's a hundred artists in this virtual room right now listening to this podcast and they all are different kinds of artists with different styles. Is there any just crystal clear advice that sort of applies universally for breaking in? 
Yes, and my advice is going to be different from anything they will hear from anyone else. And my advice is don't go the traditional route of licensing where you go to the licensed shows and you, there's a traditional route, which I think is a dead end for most artists. And I really recommend against it. So the route I recommend that works for us, that I've seen work really well, is if you believe that your work is, works well either on different products or would be great in an advertising campaign, because there can be a lot of money in that, where like a company would use your work, for example, like a Maybelline company, or I, I mean, there's just so many multi-billion dollar companies out there that are always looking for something to make their brand stand out for a campaign. So look for opportunities. Look for, look for opportunities where your art would be the perfect solution for a company. Now, there's a lot to it, and it would require another hour-long phone call for me to really go into that. But that's it in a nutshell, is look for opportunities and then look for companies that need something. You might see a car company do an ad, and you see that they're targeting a certain type of buyer, and that type of buyer is also your type of buyer, your buyer, for whatever reason. And you might say, you know, my, my work would be a perfect fit with that company. And then you need to find out who, you, who to talk to and start a conversation and start a relationship with the company. I mean, it's, it's something that, you know, you have to work at. You have to make phone calls. You have to not be afraid to have conversations with people, to introduce yourself and your work to people. And then the other thing is, you know, a lot of artists are already getting opportunities coming to them and they don't know what to do with the opportunity. And so they don't answer the emails and don't return the phone calls because it's licensing and they don't really know what to do with it. And if that is you, um, someone listening to this, don't be afraid. Jump into one of those opportunities and just that's how you learn how to do licensing is by doing it. That's, that's really the only way to learn, and, and reading a lot about it. There's a lot of blog posts out there. My, my blog has a lot of articles about it, and there's, there's a lot of other people writing about it too, how to put deals together and, and what to ask for and you know, how much money to ask for and all that. That's where artists get stuck, right there. How much do I ask for? I don't know, so I'm not going to return their email. <laughs> Well, that's, uh, we've all been down that path if we've ever started or run a business uh, of not being sure, passing up opportunities because we're not quite sure how to take them on in the first place. Uh, so you're saying don't let that drive by, uh, pass you by. I wonder then, let me ask one more question about licensing. So should artists have a standard licensing contract that they use and present rather than wait for someone to hand them the contract? always best because I review contracts for people and some of the contracts I see are pretty bad. <laughs> and it's if you can get the other party to sign a contract or just a written agreement, and there's a lot of templates out there that you can find that are artist friendly, which means it's looking out for the artist. If you can get them to sign your agreement, an agreement that's fair to you, that's the way to do it. Yeah, so I think uh, you're kind of singing the same song as uh, some of the other guests we've had on the show when we've asked about, you know, contracts between the artist and uh, a gallery or a gallerist. 
um, that you know very often the artist feels disempowered. Uh, they take whatever contract is sort of shoved at them, and there are long-term consequences for that. You may never recover the rights to your art again in the way that you need them, and some future opportunity comes up and you cannot take the opportunity because you've you know you've signed something early on that limited your future options. So um, I love that in this area too, uh, in licensing, you're sort of underscoring that artists are not at the mercy of the market. They've got some power here. They are the business owner. They are the holder of the license. It is their art. Uh, they can uh, they can have a standard licensing agreement and say, this is, yes, I, we can license this work. I can license this work. This is, these are my terms. This is how it works with, with me. If you're finding value in what you're hearing, a gift of $15 per month lets you sponsor this show's ongoing broadcast. A portion of our funding also goes to deliver direct education to artists who demonstrated a clear, achievable plan for transforming their businesses into self-sustaining and thriving ones that fill the world with art. Share this commitment with us now at clarkhealingsfund.org impact. We'd certainly appreciate it. Now, Maria, look, we all know a fundamental concern of working artists is income. It haunts them. They're under pressure to starve for their art, often take one-sided deals to do side work. You talked about charity work earlier, uh, which consistently keeps them from making money. They relegate their deepest love to a hobby sometimes and shortchange their livelihood in a way that any other profession simply wouldn't. So what I want to ask you about in the, is an often touchy, but you know perhaps a crucial issue. Is it realistic, first of all, for most artists to work toward at least a six-figure income? And if so, what are some pivotal means of achieving that? Yes, I think it's absolutely it's absolutely feasible to be able to earn six figures. And for that to happen, you have to think like a business person at least half the time. <laughs> you have to make decisions that generate a cash flow and generate profit. You have to charge for everything. If somebody's paying you through a bank wire transfer, your bank's going to charge you a fee of 15 to $30. Charge your customer for that. All these little things add up and artists eat them. They eat all these extra things and you can't make it if you do that. No business can make it not just artists, but any business you go into, if you're giving stuff away, if you're doing free services, if you're giving extra all the time, it, you cannot stay in business that way. And that's really what I try to get people to shift their thinking. And if you have to hire someone to handle the financial end of things for you, maybe an assistant, somebody that can have the financial conversations because you're not comfortable with it, then do that. But Simple things like when someone commissions a, a, a painting for my husband, Drew, this is what I say to them. I say, okay, let me, let me get an understanding of what you want. And they give me an understanding of what they want. I price it out. I send them a quote. In the price quote, it says, we require 50% non-refundable installment payment to start the sketch process. You get to make up to two changes to the sketches. Changes beyond that, we charge you extra. Full balance is due when it's finished. And I enforce all of that. 
I enforce it and I don't care what the circumstances are. And what I mean by that is if somebody says, oh my gosh, well, we need this, you know, in seven days and it takes me 10 days to get a check cut. You know what my answer is to that? Well, if your company takes that long to cut a check, why don't we just, why don't you just give me a personal check or a personal credit card and then you can put in an expense, you can expense it because we can't, we get started after we get payment, after we get the installment payment. And I've really put my foot down on that because I've learned the hard way. And the hard way was, you know, we had a big clothing company many, many years ago, commissioned Drew to do work on a project. It was, it was a company, it was like a big mall clothing company. And Drew worked on it three or four days straight. Then they changed their minds, decided they didn't want to go in that direction. We never got paid for that time. And when 100% of your income comes from your husband creating art, you just lost almost a week's worth of pay. Like that was a, that was a harsh lesson for us. So after that, I said that will never happen to us again. And it never did. Never did because I get a non-refundable deposit up front. That's just one example, but there's a lot of things that, a a lot of policies that you put in place to prevent you from losing money, losing time, because your time is money, and um, just making these little changes. When you ask someone for an installment payment up front, and you tell them, this is how I work, and I call that the five magic words, five magic words, this is how I work, I'll send you a quote, if it looks good to you, I'll need 50% installment payment up front, and then I'll get started on it for you. And I'm really excited. Thank you so much for this opportunity. When you say that to someone, you make it clear what your expectations are, and you are professional and confident, and they respect that. Yeah, it sounds like somebody's going to actually deliver on the work. And so now I'm much more willing to part with uh, said deposit. You know, So I love that. That's kind of what we were talking about under licensing, that you know, you, uh, you're basically firm about uh, what it is you need. And so it sounds like what you're saying is one important way to get to a six-figure income is stop working for nothing and stop taking bad deals and start putting into place uh, the professional characteristics of a money-earning business. Uh, so I love that. I think it's really solid advice. Let me ask you then in in this sort of sales and income segment of the show, probably another question that, you know, we like to out the questions that, you know, we're all thinking and no one's really saying. And so most of the artists I've met position the gallery as central, if not the end all be all of their careers. It's always the gallery, maybe even nothing but the gallery. And yet the gallery can kind of be like a dominating husband. You know, you, uh, you finally get one, uh, but then that gallery starts picking your friends and limiting your interactions with them and telling you what you can and can't do in public. And I don't mean to besmirch all galleries by any stretch, uh, and gallerists work hard, we have them on this show, but for every new artist seeking one, there's a working artist saying, look, I'm stuck, I'm controlled, I don't have free will anymore. And so my question to you is, First, is this a problem you run into? If so, what do you do about it? And Or is it just the cost of being an artist and something you just have to accept? You know, galleries work well for some people. I wouldn't put all my eggs in the gallery basket for sure. I, I actually don't do hardly anything with galleries, r- rarely. 
Um, we get asked to quite a bit, but I haven't found one that's impressed me yet. Um, however, I work with a lot of artists, and I know some artists that do really well with galleries because they're in good galleries that are selling for them. They have a great relationship. Um, one of my dearest friends, Robin Hires, she is out of Laguna Beach. She, I don't remember the name of the gallery she works out of, but she loves the gallery that she's in. They treat her incredibly well. She's been there for a few years. It's been a win, win, win for everybody. I don't hear a lot of stories like that, though. I'm happy when I do. So let's see. I, I think I lost track of the question. What was the question? <laughs> so I'm actually uh, glad to hear. I, I'm surprised to hear, in one sense, that you've you get a lot of offers galleries um, because I'm not sure how many galleries work with surf art, etc. And I know you're not limited to your husband's work. But my question was, uh, and so that part was interesting in and of itself. But my question to you is is this issue of the gallery sort of being like uh, the dominating husband, the person that sort of controls your very existence, and once you have one, it's kind of a catch-22. You're glad you have one, but at the same time, they're running your life uh, and, and determining the shape of your career. Is, is this a problem you run into, and what do you do about that problem if you run into it, or is it just something that artists have to accept? If you're going to do business with galleries, it's going to be like that. That is a problem with some galleries, and... Um the way you can avoid that is when you sign your agreement with the gallery, make sure it's not exclusive to anywhere other than the little town or area that they're in. That's really important. You should have the freedom to show your work in any other gallery outside of that immediate geographical area. So that's number one. Um, number two, you want to make sure that your agreement states that you get paid within a certain amount of time. For example, um, you get paid on the 15th of the month following sales from the previous month. That's reasonable. I know galleries that hold on to money for months and months and months, and that's not fair. That's not fair at all. If you're not being paid properly, you, you have to go there and demand that you get paid. I know a gallery in Laguna Beach where he's, they've got a reputation for not paying half their artists, they, they just don't pay them. And, and surprisingly, only one artist has ever taken them to court and won, but everybody else lets them get away with it. And, you know, one of the reasons we've turned down putting Drew's art in some galleries is because I look at the, the profitability of it. So with Drew's art being very surf-oriented and it's very poppy and bright colors, so it's not your traditional... Art is not fine art. It's more illustrative art, um, but he does paint on canvas. So we, we had a gallery in Hawaii want him to be part of a surf art show exhibit. And, but it, the exhibit was only three days. And when I looked into it and I asked them, well, so we'll pay to ship the art out, but you'll pay to ship it back, correct? No, we don't pay to ship it back. Um, and you have to pay us to pack it for you. And in the, it, when I penciled it out, it turned out that it was going to probably cost us a couple thousand dollars just to exhibit. When you look into shipping, paying them to pack it, and if nothing sells, you know, and then also getting things framed and all that. So I said, no, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity, but it just doesn't make financial sense for us to do this. And that's what I look at. I look at, is, is there going to be any kind of value in this, financial or otherwise? And... 
in that case, I didn't see any value at all. Other than people calling and saying, oh, I saw your art in the gallery and on the North Shore and it looked great, you know, and pats on the back. But we grew out of that years ago, needing that pat on the back, which I think is something that, you know, once you get over 40, you kind of get, you kind of don't care about that anymore. When you're younger, it's fun to get that pat on the back, but you learn pretty quick that the pat on the back does not feed your children or pay your mortgage. I I like you talking about kind of getting tough. Uh, I've run into that actually. You know, we have working artists on the show and I can tell the ones that have been asked one too many times to do something that was beyond the pale because I'll say, hey, love to have you as a guest on our show. And they go, what do I get out of it? And it's like, wow, you know, it's a little brusque, but at the same, they're jaded and they could be a little, uh, what's the word? It can be a little bit diva-like. But what that comes out of is they've reached a point in their career where they almost had to turn and and force themselves to resist taking every opportunity that came along just because it felt validating. They don't want the validation nearly as much as they want to focus on the steps in their career that are going to make them successful and lead to the next best steps up, right? And so uh, eventually we usually persuade them to be on our show precisely for that reason. It's like, can you come on the show and tell us talk about how it pisses you off that you're always being asked to do free things. Oh yeah, I can definitely do that. I do, I do that for free. It's like, exactly. So we'd love to have you <laughs> as I said, but you know, so come and be that jaded uh, diva on our show. We want, we want that, but, <laughs> and tell other people how they need to. So I, I love that you kind of, you're kind of pulling that out. Well, I'd like to pivot to the final segment of our show, uh, which, and I can't thank you enough, Maria, for being here and talking about, uh, you know, artist resources, licensing, and sales and income. But I, I think uh, a topic that's near and dear to a lot of artists' mind, and I, I know it's a topic that you delve into, or I'm pretty sure you do, is pricing and strategy. So one of the most common statements we hear from working artists at CHF is, I think I'm not pricing my work right or high enough. And of course, the common answer that they get back from everybody is, we'll sell it at whatever the market will bear. And that sounds really good, except no one seems very sure what the market will bear. <laughs> so they come back and they say, well, how do I know where to set my price? I don't know what the market will bear. So can you shed some light on this conundrum? Well, it is a conundrum because, <laughs> unfortunately, there's no real set price. What you can – okay, yeah, let's back up for a second. One thing I want to point out is there are different games being played in the world, okay? There's different markets. So first, choose which game you want to play or which market you want to be in. And what I mean by that is there's the game of the high-end, high, high-end, you know, 50,000-plus paintings being sold in the snobby gallery marketplace. That's one game. To be successful in that game, you have to play by those rules, right? I would never survive in that game. I would I wouldn't survive a day in it. I'd get eaten up and chewed out. Um, but that's one that's one way to go. Another one is to go on the super low end market at the other end where you're selling eighty dollar paintings off of Etsy.com or Instagram or one of those types of places. Um, and then there's everything in between. So the first thing you have to do and you can do this, you can decide where you wanna be. 
you can decide, do you want to be on the high end? Do you want to be on the low end? Do you want to be in the middle? And the middle, the middle could look like, I, I guess you could say Drew and I are in the middle because we sell paintings that range from, you know, 1600 to $6,000 is like our average range, sometimes more, sometimes less, but that's like a typical range. So you decide where you want to be. And then you do the things that need to be done to be there. So if you want to be in the high-end market, there are things you have to do. Um, you have to play the game of the rules that are laid out. And that means maybe getting certain awards or accolades, meeting certain people, influential people that will bring you into that game. That means using quality premium materials and uh, maybe studying under a certain master for a period of time, you know, whatever whatever the rules are of that. If you want to sell to um, a market where, let's say, you want your paintings to sell for five to ten thousand dollars, so you have to create artwork that in my that is of that quality first of all, and you have to go to where those buyers are going to be. And there, there is a lot of money out there. There's a ton of money out there. If you want to sell in the high-end market, but you have to, if, if you don't live in that high-end market, let's say you're an average person that has, uh, you know, you drive <laughs> what I drive, a Honda CRV. You, you know, you live an average life, right? You're, you're not in the wealthy world. You've got to get yourself into that wealthy world if you want to meet, if you want to reach those people. That's what you have to do. Decide where you want to be and then do what's got to be done. So I'll, I'll give you a little example. Um, so like I said, you know, my husband's surf art is illustrative. It's kind of poppy. It's, you know, it's not really considered fine art. But he has another style of art that he does. So we actually market two different styles. And the other style is considered fine art. He calls it his sacred geometry art. And he, uh, it sells for, you know, four times as much as the surf art does. But it's somewhat new. He's only been doing it for about five years or so. And so we've, we have to reach an entire new market of people. And these people need to be able to afford it. So all the surf art collectors that we have, they are not the people. We need, you know, we're reaching an entire new market. And so we've done things to expose ourselves to that new market. We've um, gone to certain trade shows. We've gone to certain events. Um, we've made new friends. <laughs> we put ourselves into a different circle of people. Does that make sense? It does make sense. I think you're talking about simultaneously a mentality upgrade. Um, you're thinking about um, some, dip, some challenging thinking to make some choices. There's a... There's a lot. I'm not going to try to recap that. <laughs> I, I don't think I could mansplain it if yeah, I wanted and to, then, and, and <laughs> even though that's what a host does. You that, know. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> um, and it, just to give you an example of the changes, just a few of the changes we made to reach a higher-end market of buyers, um, we started dressing nicer. You know, we live at the beach. Drew and I are surfers. We're beach people. So... For the last 20 years, you know, we would wear shorts and tank tops and flip-flops to the office um, because that's this whole town. I mean, when you go out to dinner in this town, if you go to the nicest restaurant, you put on your nicest flip-flops. That's how it is here where we live. But we decided to kind of step it up a little bit. I mean, we're, not, we're still not dressed like New Yorkers, 
But for, you know, Drew's wearing button-down shirts now instead of T-shirts. And that's a huge change for him because he's a surfer. Um, so that's just one example. We uh, He went on a cruise. This is really awesome, actually. So he studies ancient history. And a lot of the symbolism that he studies from, from ancient cultures, he works into these paintings and the, the sacred geometry paintings. And so he... We put him on a cruise in Croatia last October. I didn't go because I had to, somebody had to stay with the kids. But he went on a two-week expedition where they explored the Bosnian pyramids. Yes, there are pyramids in Bosnia. The world's largest pyramid is there. And so it was like a study thing, but it was also an amazing thing because he was on this like five-star yacht in the, you know, in the waters there in Croatia. And what's amazing is he came back with buyers. Like, we, we already got two commissions from people that he met on that cruise. And, I mean, it just, it's, it's, ama- it's more than paid for his trip. It's really amazing. Like, I, I had a feeling that something like that was going to happen, but I'm just amazed that it actually did. You know, I'm, I'm excited about it because I'm like, okay, we're on the right track. You know, it's, it's exciting to create a new a whole new niche and collector base. Another, you know, common answer that people get with pricing, though, is, look, this is really simple. Calculate your labor, your materials, your other costs, pay yourself a reasonable wage, add all that up, and that's what you charge. And that sounds good to me, of course, or anyone who makes, you know, daily household goods, et cetera. But a lot of artists are hearing that the resulting numbers are unrealistic when they go to actually use them. They're saying, they're hearing things like, well, you can't get that at the place you are in your career or not until you're well known. But you also can't get to the place that you're that well known until you can charge more for your work. So is there a catch-22 or a conundrum there also in the way that artists are paid and in how they're taught to price their efforts? You know, there is. But here's what you need to do. If you're one of those artists that you are really struggling with pricing, if you're struggling with your pricing, you're probably in the beginnings of your career. And there's a couple different formulas you can follow. And here's one, and it's super simple. You look at what people are selling in your geographical area of similar themes, similar medium, similar style, or as close as you can get to what you're doing, and you look at that and you base your formula off of that. So maybe, all right, so I'll give you an example. There's an artist um, that I know that charges $6 a square inch. She's an oil painter, and she's very well-known. She has, uh, she does incredibly well. So if you're just starting out, maybe you wouldn't start with $6 a square inch. Maybe you would start with $3 a square inch and do that for a little while. Once you get things selling, then inch your prices up. But to come up with a formula to start with, try it out. You're going to constantly be making changes. I change our pricing all the time. I'm always changing it. I'm always reanalyzing it. And we've, I've been doing this for 20 years. So you just have to analyze it and you have to see how it's doing. If your work is selling really well, if all of a sudden you're selling so much work and you can't keep up, which I know quite a few artists who go through this, it's a great problem to have. That means they need to raise their prices by 
that'll slow down the sales a little bit or you'll just make more money, raise your prices. And if that continues, raise them again. Keep raising them. But you got to start somewhere and you don't want to start high. Um, you don't want to start high because then you have to go down if you miscalculate it. And that doesn't look good. And it makes your previous buyers a little angry when you do that. So you do have to be, be really careful with that. Another another formula, let's say, okay, so we're mostly talking about paintings, but, but there's all, all sorts of, all, all different kinds of art out there, right? Like there could be, a, we had somebody bring us a mannequin for Drew to paint. It was the most bizarre project ever. And I said, how in the world do I price this out? I have no idea. So what I did was I took, um, I have figured out a monthly rate, weekly rate, and daily rate for Drew. And that's how I charge for price for um, projects that are just bizarre and you can't, you know, something that we've never done before and you can't really nail it down to the square inch or square foot. Um, I will ask Drew, okay, how long do you think it'll take you to paint this? He'll say, I don't know, maybe six days. And I'll say, okay, it always takes longer than you say it's going to take. So I'm going to say it takes two weeks, and I'll give them the two-week rate. And I'll say, this is the price. And in my mind, I know how I came to that price because I based it on his weekly rate times two. And how do you come up with your weekly rate? Well, that's a whole other formula, but it's actually very simple. How much do, do you want to make this first year? You take your yearly income that your yearly projected income and you divide it by 52 there's a weekly rate if you want to make 70,000 a year with your art your weekly rate would be I don't know 1500 I'm, I'm I should be at a calculator well but of course that implies that you're getting the work every week so you know I uh, one time I told a guy I was making uh, $150 an hour mowing lawns, and he says, yeah, that'd be great if you mowed eight, every day for eight hours a day, but you don't. You you have your travel time and your downtime. You know, you have a lot of other things. So um, is my is what I charge the, the customer for mowing a lawn what I would need to make if I was mowing a lawn uh, for, you know, 40 hours a week, 50, 50 weeks out of the year? And, or, or is it, in fact, more? And so, uh, but I, I think what you're, you're doing in principle, you're talking about in principle, is interesting because, you know, there are installation artists uh, and other people that do on-site commission work and other things that, you know, it, it can kind of feel, you know, what do you charge for this bizarre installation where we have webbing hanging from the sitting, the ceiling? And Yeah, so you have a daily rate, and that, that's how you do it. You, and you have to decide what that rate is. And, you know, it's hard for me to give numbers because what you would, if I lived in New York, my prices would probably be higher, maybe, than they are now um, because New York costs even more money to live in than where I live. But where I live, it's very expensive to live here. Um, if you make 50000 a year, you're poverty level. And that's it's just a beach town, you know. It's but if but if I lived in Pensacola, Florida, which is also a beach town, but it's really cheap to live there. Heck, I could work five hours a week and I'd be living just like I live right now. It'd be great. Um, or if you lived in the middle of Ohio or Kansas, 
you know, you would charge less, but I think everybody makes less in different parts of the country. So that's one thing also, you know, that might be taken into consideration. However, and that's when you're starting out, though. But if you once you become established, your pricing is going to, if you make an effort to have it be somewhat of a system, somewhat of a structure, it's easy. It's easier. And then when you decide to raise your prices, you just raise it across the board by 10% or 20%. Let me ask you uh, one more question in this segment uh, as we sort of wind up the show. You know, these days, artists, like most entrepreneurs, know that they need to do self-promotion. Sales, marketing, they tend to get a lot of laundry lists, though. You know, you need to be in social media, email, gallery shows, art fairs, blogs, it goes on and on, uh, and oftentimes, in fact, those lists are a way of saying, I know you can't do any of this, I'll do it for you, uh, you know, and it, it almost exists to disempower them. So there's a lot of skepticism, you know, and the question uh, in their minds very often they bring to us is how much of these things do you have to do for how long uh, if these are the answer before you start gaining ground? So my question to you is, is there a magic bullet or is there a recipe that most of us are missing? You have to always stay in touch with people or they will forget about you. So you can't ever let your foot off the gas it's the way it is. Whether it's sending out newsletters every week, which I personally think is the best thing any artist will ever do to grow their career is to start a newsletter um, or posting Instagram photos every day or Facebook photos. If you don't stay in front of people, they will forget about you. And people forget about you pretty quickly. That's why Coca-Cola, even though everybody on the planet knows what Coca-Cola is, you can go to the jungles in the Amazon. They have Coca-Cola there. But Coca-Cola advertises. Why do they continue to advertise? We all know what it is. We know if we like it or not. That's why. What is this sweet, syrupy beverage of which you speak? I, I have never heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> Something I gave up a long time ago. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking, like, I live in New York. <laughs> I find out, found out what they were putting in it. I said, no more. I live in Brooklyn. What are you talking about? We have organic ginger beer made fresh from rooftop gardens, you know, in Bushwick. <laughs> now you're talking my language. I'm all organic. There you go. Exactly. Here it's it's urban farm. I met an urban farmer the other day, and I'm like, wow, you know, you should get a leather jacket that says urban farmer. It's kind of scary. <laughs> That's what we have here. The idea, Coca-Cola, no way. I can't, I can't do it. You know, I'm over 50. I can't do it. Well, you've been listening to the Thriving Artist Podcast, a feature of the Clark Hewlings Fund for Visual Artists. For more information on Maria Brophy, visit mariabrophy.com. For more information on the Clark Hewlings Fund, visit clarkhewlingsfund.org. And to sponsor an artist with your small but impactful gift, visit clarkhewlingsfund.org slash impact. And be sure and follow our podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Thank you for listening. And thank you, Maria. It's been really great having you. I've loved it. Every minute of it. Thanks.